This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest for March 11th, 2021, the Zero Sum Edition. I'm David Plotz of CityCast. I am in Washington, D.C. I'm joined by Emily Bazelon, the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School from New Haven. Hello, Emily. Hey, David. And by John Dickerson of CBS's 60 Minutes from New York City and wearing his extremely interesting sweater, which I hope we can post a photo of again. And I love talking about. Hello, John. It's second in your list of favorites behind... Justice Stephen Breyer's retirement schedule. Non-retirement. Oh, we'll get yeah. to that. We will get to that, I assure you. You know what John's sweater is? It's like if Mondrian like, created the American flag. I go, said that to John I, before you... Oh, gang, stop, <laughs> stop fighting over my sweater. Sorry, Dave. All right. I didn't mean on to. Today's sh- on today's show, we're going to talk about ARP, the American Rescue Plan, the most consequential domestic legislation since the Affordable Care Act which passed Congress, and we will talk about why it is so consequential. Then we will be joined by Heather McGee to talk about her incredible new book about race and about the American tendency to self-destruction. The book is called The Sum of Us. It's fantastic. And then, is the vaccine rollout going well or poorly? We will check in with Harvard epidemiologist Michael Mina about vaccines and also about our old friend testing, which we seem to have forgotten about. Plus, Emily, did you see those funny photos of the lifeguard in Hawaii rescuing Stephen Breyer on his first post-retirement vacation when he got caught in the wild surf. You didn't see those photos? Of course you didn't, because he has not retired yet, amazingly. Plus, we will have cocktail chatter. By the way, doesn't he have, he has like three and a half years to, to uh, uh, retire. You and assume avoid. many things about the Senate. John, well. you were just, why are you throwing that meat in front of me? <laughs> Stop it. Stop it. I've done enough with this. I know. I know. Sorry. That this was bit funny. has gone on enough. The American Rescue Plan passed the House. Yes, it already passed the House, passed the Senate, passed the House again. Now, when President Biden signs it, it will become one of the most consequential pieces of domestic policy legislation in decades. That is because this bill, which was pitched as a COVID rescue bill, has been expanded, or I guess it was originally, it wasn't expanded because it was its original intent, but it was uh, it was made broad to encompass a variety of largely progressive economic measures that collectively could have a huge impact on poor and middle-class Americans, at least in the short term. The average household in the bottom 20% of America will see its annual income rise by more than 20%, 
child poverty in the U.S. will drop by half next year because of this. So, John, what are some of the other elements of this bill that are important but don't necessarily have a lot to do with COVID relief? Well, I mean, it depends what you, you know, you can define that differently um, uh, because you can, you know, some people are arguing that the state and local uh, money in the bill doesn't, strictly speaking, have anything to do with COVID relief. Of course, the states and the, and the um, uh, cities would argue and make it, and it's an easy case to make. And actually, the um, Major Garrett of CBS, who does a podcast called The Debrief, did a great bunch of interviews with mayors or that included mayors talking about exactly where the cuts came when revenue went down and spending went up. Anyway, it just kind of addresses that piece of it nicely. Jason Furman, who worked at the uh, in the Obama administration, who's been on the show, actually argues that he thinks there was too much money in there for state and local. So it's not just uh, conservatives or Republicans who are making that case. Anyway, there's um, some pen- pension money in the bill that's basically um, not related to COVID. Um, but to me, anyway, the most interesting thing is the child tax credit, um, which changes. It's not just the amount that goes to people with children, but it changes the way in which the money is delivered. Under the current scheme, you get a child ta- you get a tax credit if you have some income against which you can use the credit. This is the new in the new bill for at least one year. You will get guaranteed money regardless of how much income you have, and it isn't. And this is something progressives have been pushing for for a long time, and it will be. A fascinating experiment, and this is there was a debate with a, a lot of Republicans arguing that you needed to have some kind of a work requirement, and they they didn't win the day. And it's going to be a, it'll be a fascinating experiment. This is what this is what's going to lift so many kids out of poverty, or that's what those estimations are based on. And it's going to be fascinating to see if it works, because if it does, it will be um, one of the most major poverty ending things that a president has done since Lyndon Johnson. And if it seems as successful, it could become permanent, which would right. have... That's what's so interesting is in the next year, there's going to be so, I would think, so much work and research. I mean, assuming every time I say one of these things, I feel like I need to say, assuming that people still believe in marshalling facts to make an argument in order to support public policy. Assuming that still is the case in public life, then there will be a year's worth of research on this money, how it's used, how it affects work and going to get work, um, how it affects families and how it changes. I mean, it's a major change in the one of the most important, well, if you see society a certain way, one of the most important things you can do. As FDR said, you know, the measure of society is not whether we can increase uh, for those who have abundance, but help those who don't. I mean, I guess the way I see this bill just sort of overarchingly is that it's the opposite of cutting taxes for rich people. It's the idea that you stimulate the economy by giving it to the people who have less, who will spend, and that you're redistributing wealth and trying to make the American social compact stronger. There are also parts of it that are particularly addressing areas, really vital businesses that support families, right? So you see almost $40 billion investment in childcare centers, which suffered during the pandemic. There's a lot of money for restaurants, which hopefully will bring back downtown areas and other parts of towns all across the country that have um, suffered because people haven't been going out to eat. And, you know, if we are recovering from the virus this summer and fall, you could just imagine a really vibrant economy in which people are going out a ton and there's money 
pumping toward the people who have really lost. I feel like sometimes it's hard to remember how devastating this pandemic has been for people who have lost their jobs or just, you know, at obviously lost family members or loved ones, but that the um, costs have been so unequally distributed. And this bill actually tries to go, it's not that targeted. Lots of people are going to get some money, but it really tries to address those losses. I think what's What's astonishing, Emily, to your original point, your point you made at the beginning there, is just if you look at how the benefits of this bill are distributed versus the benefits of the big Trump tax cut bill, the benefits of the Trump tax cut bill went overwhelmingly to the richest Americans. Like there was hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars that were essentially given to richest Americans on this theory of that will then trickle down to the rest of the economy. And almost nothing went to the poorest. And this is exactly the opposite. The overwhelming majority of these benefits are going to people who are poorer and middle income, lower middle income. And that is a, it's, you know, if you are progressive, obviously you're going to support that. And it's a, it's certainly a much better, uh, you know, or it's, a, it's, a, it's going to be an interesting test. Like, does this stimulate the economy in the way that, that uh, we hope it will? And and I'm crossing my fingers. I guess my question about this is how did such a progressive bill come out of such a moderate president? Joe Biden is not a progressive economist. He's obviously surrounded himself with people who are somewhat progressive. And I, is it just that he figured I'm going to get one shot here and I better make it count? One shot. And, and there's been a lot of reporting that the lessons of the stimulus package under the beginning of the Obama administration affected his thinking and his staff and even a lot of Democratic senators that in order that if you really want to try and solve the problem, you have to go as big as possible. And big doesn't just mean dollars. It means I mean, I think the child tax credit fits in the category of build back better, which is we're not just going to try and solve things to where they were. We're going to try to institute social policy we believe in that's going to make things better. And he was and he's been saying this during the campaign. I mean, he was the the um, child's tax credit was something he talked about during the campaign. So he's basically doing what he campaigned on. The Tax Policy Center um, looked at this and and is the place that did that ran the numbers behind what what you're saying, David. And the, the FDR quote that I couldn't remember was from his 1937 inauguration in which he said, the test of our progress is not whether we add more to the abundance of those who have much, it is whether we provide enough for those who have too little. And what strikes me as interesting here is as the president goes out and tries to sell this, which he will now do, Pew Research Center found that about 70 percent of Americans support the bill. When President Trump passed his tax cut in uh, at the end of 2017, polling in early January by Pew showed that 37 percent of the country approved of it. It was and it never got better. So but so the, what? I mean, like, what does it matter? He got his bill. The people he, the rich people got what they wanted. I mean, no, but and, then the Democrats lost the next election. So to the extent that political parties try to do things that are popular to bring people into their coalition, particularly when they have Senate races up in 2022, you want to see things that you do that are popular, bring people into your party. And also when you're fighting over a certain portion of the electorate, if you look at the polling, uh, again, that Pew polling, 63% of those who make less than $60,000 approve of the AARP um, in the Republican Party for a president who basically took a partisan approach, right, did it all with Democratic votes, doesn't seem to have paid any price for that. I think that's in part because people priced in, nobody cares about bipartisanship anymore. Uh, And I also think there's a big difference between being a partisan and being a partisan and not being a jerk about it. 
which I think is the route that Biden took. But I think you generally want to do things that have broad public popularity. What's interesting here is, unlike the ACA and the Trump tax bill, you have it's a much, much more popular piece of legislation that Biden is going out to sell, which may change the political dynamic for its passage. So, Emily, there has been essentially no cogent Republican opposition to this bill. They've been talking about Pepe Le Pew, Dr. Seuss, apparently, I hear. Uh, we're not even hearing the kind of classic Paul Ryan fiscal responsibility drumbeat that usually defined a Republican Party in opposition to a Democratic president. Um, yeah, you are. I don't know what you're talking about. I feel like they've been perfectly cogent. They don't like it. They call it a Christmas tree. It's like supposed to be a COVID relief bill. It's got a ton of other stuff. You're bailing out the unions. You're bailing out the broke cities. Where have you been? Don't confuse confuse whether you agree with what they say with whether they're saying it. It doesn't. doesn't, Well, I don't know. It just feels it feels it feels wan. Different it feels point. very wan. I mean, they're saying it. I think they're very yeah. excited about Dr. It's not Sue. that they're not saying and it. They're, it's they're saying and they're, it and they don't agree with it. Well, it's, no, it's not even that. It's like, <laughs> I actually kind of do agree with it. I, I kind well, of, it's I, empirically I kind true. Of, I, I'm a, <laughs> but dude, I'm I, a fiscally it's empirically conservative true person. that they're saying it. <laughs> no, but it's, I don't, I guess I, I, I'm not sure that maybe we're, we're paying attention to different things in the world. It, it doesn't appear to me that there is, Usually, when there's any Democratic bill that that costs more than a billion dollars, it's oh, we're bankrupting our children. We're with this reckless borrowing, and it just like after the Trump years, it's such a hard argument to make, and it's not being made with the. It just doesn't appear to me that it's made with the kind of vim or effectiveness that it has been made in the past. Maybe I'm well, wrong. I, they definitely well, here's, are. Here's a, I have an idea that might might break this impasse or maybe it's totally wrong. I wonder if it's the speed with which this has happened. So it seems to me that one of the most important lessons from what year was that? 2009, 10, whenever that was, you know me and dates, was that it took forever. Like it went on and on and on and on and everyone got more and more grumpy about the Affordable Care Act the longer it took. And this time it just like happened fast. And so maybe, David, it's not that those arguments aren't out there or even that they're won. They're just not like having time to really like take hold. I think that there is something to that. You don't you also don't have conservative Democrats um, supporting that argument. I mean, what hamstrung either actually hamstrung him or in, in anticipation of it, President Obama and his team knew they couldn't pass something that was too, was too big was conservative Democrats who wouldn't vote for for too much spending on the argument that it would blow up the deficit. You don't have that anymore, really. That that made it go by faster, too. There's no question that, that Republicans are talking about the debt in a way that's kind of amusing, given how little they talked about it over the last four years. But it's more important than that. It's not that they just didn't talk about it over the last four years. It's that Republicans embraced, either implicitly or explicitly, cockamamie arguments from the economists or the economic team inside the Trump White House about how the tax cuts were going to pay for themselves and how they were going to pay for all this other extra spending. So it wasn't just that the, you know, the temperance leaders allowed drinking. I mean, they rolled in the ke- the kegs. They pretended that what was, what was in that red cup was water and not beefeater gin. It's more than just kind of having been silent. They allowed a total disregard for for deficits over the last four years in a way that makes these current arguments um, particularly hollow. Uh, But it's not that they're not making them. 
I'm the my the provision I'm most interested in. I'm curious whether this is going to take flight. Is that I think it is that Texas will under this the ARP will get more money for Medicaid than is actually being spent on Medicaid. So if they end up if their end up being ends up being three billion dollars that the state needs to spend on Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act, they were going would have gotten back I think three billion and then ninety percent of three billion. Now they are going to get $5 billion. So they're actually going to get extra money if they just adopt this Medicaid expansion. And it's going to be such an interesting test. Will they bother to do this Medicaid expansion, which is not having this Medicaid expansion is killing thousands and thousands of Texans every year. And here's this chance to do the Medicaid expansion and actually get billions of dollars extra for doing it. And they probably and still won't do it. That They'll... is a great point. Wow. Slate Plus members, you get benefits Zero ads on any Slate podcast. Bonus segments on our show. You get to support the work that Slate is doing. It's only a dollar for the first month. You can sign up by going to slate.com slash GabFest Plus. Our topic on Slate Plus this week comes from a listener, and it's about what do you do when you're doing something, a project, work, and you know it's gone terribly wrong? How do you solve that? Do you solve it by starting over? Do you solve it by powering through? Is there some other way to solve it? So we are going to explore that very interesting question that all of us face in our lives. Go to slate.com slash GapFest Plus to become a member today. This episode of the GapFest is sponsored by Aura Frames. Are you ready to win Mother's Day? Cement your reputation as the best gift giver in your family? Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. That mom will love looking back on childhood memories seeing you what you're up to today, checking out grandkids, checking out cousins. And even better, with unlimited storage and an easy-to-use app, you can keep on updating your mom's frame with new photos so that it's a gift that keeps on giving. This is how I live in my family. I gave my mother an Aura frame. It was either for Mother's Day or for her birthday. She absolutely adores it. She's constantly hectoring me to update it with more photos, which I do. I also gave my girlfriend's mother an Aura frame. And I hope she hectors my girlfriend to update it with more photos. But it is a present that will bring absolute delight to a mother in your life. And they have a great deal for Mother's Day. GapFest listeners can save on this perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GapFest at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Heather McGee has written... The Sum of Us, What Racism Costs Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together. It's a superb new book about race and self-interest and a poisonous self-destructive tendency in American life in which white people will destroy nice things rather than let black and brown people share them. And this is a book that that will change the way you look at a lot of issues. So Heather, welcome to the GabFest. I am sorry to make you do this, but when you come up with a great metaphor... You are stuck having to explain it to every new audience that you meet. I know you have done this a million times. Bob Dylan had a Rolling Stone. <laughs> you have an empty swimming pool. Please explain. I am so excited for the song about the pool. I'm so excited for the song about the pool. So this country uh, used to have nearly 2,000 public swimming pools. And they were built in the 30s and 40s as part of this building boom in the New Deal era of public amenities, parks, libraries, schools, And these were not just any pools. These were grand resort-style pools that held, like, thousands of swimmers. 
And yet, like much of the New Deal government expenditures and policies, many of the pools across the country were segregated and for whites only. And so when in the 50s and 60s, Black families were empowered to sue and advocate and say, hey, those are our tax dollars. We want our kids to swim too. And cities and towns were threatened with desegregation of their public pools. Many of them opted to drain their public pools rather than integrate them. And the reason why that's the central metaphor in my book is that it meant that a public good was lost. It was made life worse for white families, for the entire community. It sort of gutted this core piece of public infrastructure that was, in many cases, the heart of the community. It meant that wealthier families were able to just sort of build a backyard pool, which is what we began to see all over the country. And private swim clubs cropped up everywhere. So what was once a public amenity became a private luxury. Black families lost out completely, right? They never got to enjoy that kind of government largesse and commitment to a decent standard of living. There was a cost for everyone. And that, to me, was a very helpful articulation of what happened when we moved radically and drastically from a New Deal era of social democracy with an asterisk, a race-based asterisk, to the neoliberal inequality era that followed right on the heels of the civil rights movement. So one of the points I think that you make following from what you just said is that the right in this country has used race as a wedge issue. Yeah. Um, not that, you know, the left has been by any means perfect, but that that's been politically a very powerful weapon. Yeah. And I think, and tell me if I have this right, that you are then arguing that the left cannot afford to pretend that's not happening. Yes. The Democrats have to address race head on because Republicans are using it as a wedge issue. It's going to be in all of their political messaging and advertising. And so Democrats, liberals have to respond. I wonder what you think about some polling that suggests that Democrats are better off talking about popular stuff, framing things more universally, even if they really do have more benefits for that, that address racial justice. Mm-hmm. I, I'm sure you, because that's like a big thread right now in the Democratic Party. How do we message? Should we be sort of elevating these issues that can unite even, and then sort of quietly benefiting people who have lost out in the past. I just wonder what you think about that issue of how we talk about this. So I think this is really important. What effective communication both means that the communicator tells their story and that the communicator knows how the audience is going to receive it, right? What are the frames and filters that the audience has? And so in the some of us, I identify this zero-sum worldview, this idea that progress for people of color has to come at white folks' expense. A dollar in my pocket means a dollar less in yours. And if that is the worldview, then yes, when you talk about racial justice in a way that emphasizes white privilege and talks about what is needed to equalize things for black and brown communities, you do activate that zero-sum mindset. And the right wing makes that zero-sum story the breakfast, lunch, and dinner of their political messaging. And so you've got to recognize that the zero-sum is there. But what that doesn't mean is that the left can afford to skip over race because that worldview is already there. So even when you talk about things like raising the minimum wage and you know, supporting families and canceling student debt, those government programs activate 
a racialized framework in the white imagination anyway. And so what you have to do is speak to it head on. You have to actually name that zero-sum framework, say that it's wrong, actually say that the right wing is using racial division to divide us, and, and, and the result is to line the pockets of the wealthy. That's the political messaging research that we did at Demos five years ago that continues to, to be relevant today. But the idea is that you can't skip over race, but you have to talk about the way that racism has a cost for everyone. And you have to call it out as a political tool of the plutocrats. And that's how you marry the sort of class left with the race left. That's how you do a multiracial populism that leaves particularly white and also, frankly, Latino voters better armed to listen to the right wing and, and dispense with their messages even after you're done talking with them. Heather, what happens if they, they're not even necessarily listening to the, the right wing? They just have this view wherever they happen to have gotten it from. What did you learn? I mean, is this through the, the race class narrative project that you came up with the narratives for how to solve this problem? Because I think what Emily's talking about is the polling that shows um, some of those, those issues that you talked about have big support. And then when you sell them as race-based or race-identified, mm -hmm. the support diminishes. Yeah. How do you construct the narrative in a way that takes care of that? Well, I think that the there's, there's nobody who's not listening to the right wing, right? <laughs> I mean, the, mm -hmm. the, you know, it's, it's, we have to recognize that they are eight times louder at all times um, than a progressive message, than a truly progressive message. So that zero-sum story is absolutely amplified today through right-wing media, but it's very old, right? And in the book, I trace where it even came from, right? It was the core justification for the creation of a racial hierarchy to excuse and justify slavery and stolen land and stolen labor. And so it's very old. And it also means that today we both can't ignore the race elements that are always underneath any conversation about government, right? There's a 60 percentage point difference between white Americans' support for increased government spending if they have low levels of racial, racial resentment versus if they have high levels of racial resentment. Like, when you talk about government and the economy, you are activating racial tropes. However, that's why I think it's important to talk about race and racism as a tool that is being used in order to make everybody poorer. And so mm -hmm. it's both always saying, of course, that racism hurts people of color first and worst. And it's also saying that racism as used by a, a right-wing elite is in fact taking money out of your pocket. It's not your brown and black neighbors that are taking money out of your pocket, because if they were doing it, where did it go? Because they don't have it, right? <laughs> um, it's actually the folks that are winning from a divided, um, from a divided people, from a divided working and middle class. So, Heather, when you have your framework in your head, which I now do, of this the zero sum nature of so many of the issues that we're facing, or the framing of a zero sum, you start to see it everywhere. You see it in in transportation funding. You see it in. Uh, higher education, public higher education funding. You see it in debates around affirmative action, around everything. I want to put it in the other direction, which is, are there successful examples that you can point to where this country in the last 
couple of decades has looked beyond this or has escaped this zero-sum racial contest mentality that the right has imposed and actually done something that is universally beneficial. And it doesn't, you know, it could be in something unlikely. It could be in defense spending for all I know. But can you think of examples that might be models for, for uh, progress in the future? I would say that a place where we can see this working is healthcare. For example, white people are the largest share of the uninsured. And yet white Americans have been opposed to the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare since it was passed, right? Still underwater with white Americans. It was passed despite and sort of over the resistance of the Republican Party, over the resistance of the majority of white Americans. And yet the piece of it today that is still contested is Medicaid expansion, which first of all is optional for states because of a states' rights theory that was imposed from the Roberts Court, right? So we've already got like the racial thread there. And of course, once it was optional, you saw that new Mason-Dixon line of healthcare, right? Where you had most of the Confederate states not expanding Medicaid, even though it was free money, 100% of the cost was paid for by the federal government. And in my book, I go to Texas and I talk to advocates who are still fighting there for Medicaid expansion. It's the state with the highest number of uninsured and where they're really experiencing it all over the state is in the closure of rural hospitals in these predominantly white conservative rural areas that are being starved because of the high uninsured rate and would be saved if Medicaid expansion happened. In Arkansas, nearby Arkansas, the rural hospitals are sort of booming because of these Medicaid dollars. And so that's a place where you both see the choice to adopt a highly racialized policy, Medicaid, in some states creating this boom, what I call these solidarity dividends, basically where you get over the zero sum and you actually create something that is a government benefit that is for the good of all, a new kind of public good that disproportionately aids black and brown people because of the way that racism has has made these racial disparities. But the majority of the people aided are white. It creates a new public good for the entire community. And yet it's still contested, right? So there are some states like Maine, where they finally got Medicaid expansion over a five-time veto by a Trump-like little governor. And that was an incredible solidarity dividend for the state. But then there are states that are still refusing to do it. And so that, to me, is one of those things where you can see in real time whether or not a, a state chooses to, to buck the zero sum and the racialized narrative that rejects government help for its people, or whether it can overcome that and unlock that solidarity dividend. Is the American Rescue Plan a version of this in the sense yes. that... Oh my God, it's refilling the pool so much, Emily. I'm so happy. <laughs> you, you stole my follow-up, yeah. <laughs> yeah, too bad. <laughs> Heather, go ahead and explain it, how it is refilling the pool. It's so much, right? I mean, first of all, you see the zero-sum politics and the drained pool politics in the debate about it, right? This is something that the country desperately needs, and yet the white elites in the Republican Party are, feel very confident completely rejecting it in favor of talking about this dog whistle race story about Dr. Seuss, right? This narrative, they feel very confident that their base will continue to reward them 
because they're fighting the existential culture war, right? And their narrative is these the woke police, right? These black people in the streets and their dumb white liberal allies are going to come for everything you hold dear. And we're going to fight for you on that. So it doesn't really matter that we are not going to support this thing that might keep the lights on in your house, that might keep your kids having enough to eat. And they just assume that those racial politics will be enough to reelect them. So there you see the zero sum. And yet because of a multiracial anti-racist coalition in Georgia, for Pete's sake, you know, driven by black organizing, but bringing in just enough white folks to, to get Democrats over the top, this country was able to do an historic refilling of the public pool that is cutting child poverty in half, that is targeted universalism, right? It is recognizing that when you refill the pool, we're not all standing at the same depths, right? Because racism has shaped the way that communities, you know, build wealth and and experience life. And so there are some communities that are totally underwater, some communities that are, you know, just treading water. And so, yes, there is a a massive package in there for Indigenous communities, the, the biggest grant ever to Indigenous communities. There's something that's specifically going to Black farmers, disproportionately Black farmers. The child poverty grant will help Black families more. It's the same amount of money, but obviously there are more Black families in poverty because we're more likely to be paid very little for our work. And so this is an historic refilling of the pool. I hate that it was done over the opposition of the entire Republican Party because they feel like they can bank on racial resentment to keep their coalition together, even when, and this is a cost of racism to white people, the majority of white people support this bill, less so than black and brown people do, but the majority of white people support it, but they're still voting in the majority for a Republican Party that delivers them nothing but threats about Dr. Seuss. Heather, I have two questions. One is on that, whether you saw it as a possible sign of progress that there was so much time wasted on Dr. Seuss um, instead of, and you saw some of this, but it wasn't, it didn't get as much energy or maybe it, well, I want, want your thoughts on this. The work requirement that was argued about in terms of the child tax credit seemed to have a lot of the resonances that you talk about, the idea that people are getting free money. Mm-hmm. So I wanted your thoughts on why, uh, just sort of how that played out and why it seemed, and this is, I may be wrong about this, but Dr. Seuss was getting more energy than mm-hmm. what you might have expected 20 years ago, which would have been an entire party spending its time on the work requirement. And then secondly... President Biden's going to go out and and try to post hoc explain what the um, American Rescue Plan is. In his doing that, one thing that interests me in the polling is if you look at the support for the plan, which uh, is widespread among Republicans, those Republicans who support it the most, I think it's at like 60 percent in the Pew poll, are those who make less than sixty thousand dollars. And I wonder if there's an opportunity here for the president to make inroads with those voters along, uh, you know, policy lines or whether that's impossible because of the culture value stuff that you're talking about. I don't think it's impossible, John. Um, You know, that it is the only way. Right. We do need a cross-racial working class coalition. And I heard that first out of the mouths of white and black fast food workers in Kansas City, right? These are people who are making seven twenty-five an hour. They're the most derided folks in our economy, right? The burger flippers. And yet they had joined in this cross-racial organizing in a very segregated city in Kansas City. 
and explicitly said, you know, it's about black, white, and white and brown coming together, right? A, a young woman named Bridget, who's white and had kind of grown up and been steeped in the anti-immigrant kind of racist urban dog whistle narrative. And she said, you know, I realized for the first time that it's not just us and them. We we have to come up together. As long as we're divided, we're conquered. Racism hurts white workers, too, because it keeps us divided from our black and brown sisters, right? This is rhetoric coming from her, not from me. So I absolutely think it's possible and it's necessary. And in fact, organizing, that's the thing that was really clear to me in this journey that I took to write The Some of Us, was that actual organizing, people really spending time rolling up their sleeves, linking arms with people across lines of race to get something done for themselves in their own lives was what could break through that zero-sum narrative. Now, to your question about, what was the first part of your The question? work requirement of the child oh, the tax credit. the work requirement, yes. So I think something interesting that has happened, right? Most, most Americans, and this was our race class narrative messaging research that, that really revealed this, most Americans actually of all races can access the zero-sum story and can access a much fairer, inclusive story. And it's not about people who are sort of in the middle of those two things, have an idea that's somewhere in the middle of them. It's just that they toggle from one worldview to the next. The pandemic and its like flattening of the economy has done something, I think, which is that the excuses, the otherizing racialized excuses, right? The idea that a middle-class white person could have that's like, well, I've never been handed anything. And in that poor person's shoes, I would do something different, right? Like there's just something different about them. And what is the different about them? It's this racialized narrative, right? It's, It's the opposite of solidarity. It's the idea that there's sort of different kinds of people. Some groups of people are just better than others. And those different kinds of people are responsible for their own lot. And of course, the pandemic, where we literally unplugged the economy, has made more people activate the idea of there but for the grace of God go I. So stuff like work requirement, like the government needs to push you to work. I always work. I love to work. But those other people don't love to work, right? That kind of logic is not as resonant. And I think that was the wisdom and the brilliance in in this administration to just shove through these really important policies to refill the pool of public goods for everyone at a time when the zero-sum framework would be a little less easily activated. Heather McGee is the author of The Sum of Us, What Racism Costs Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together. It is a truly important, interesting book. Go get it. Heather, thanks for coming. David, John, Emily, thank you so much for gabbing with me this morning. Can I say one more thing about this book? It's really easy to access. Like, you turn the pages, which is not always true about big, important books. (laughs) That is the thing that I really um, makes me the happiest. That people who don't, who aren't wonks, who don't just, like, love to, you know, curl up with a big book about racism, (laughs) are saying, like, I couldn't put it down. And that's just, like, it's just my highest, like, highest joy that it's actually like a page turner about racism. So I'm very happy. Thank you for saying that. (laughs) Michael Mina is an assistant professor of epidemiology at Harvard's School of Public Health. And you may remember he joined us on the GabFest many moons ago to talk about the promise of rapid at-home COVID testing, a promise infuriatingly unrealized. Alas, alas. He is here to talk about the vaccine, the future of the pandemic, whatever happened with testing. 
Uh, so, Michael, welcome back. Let, let me take the first question. We're going to get to the vaccine and the future of the vaccine. But you came to us with, you know, this wonderful sort of theory, this idea, not theory, I guess it was, it was realizable, uh, that cheap rapid testing could, could help get us out of the pandemic a lot faster. It feels like the shiny object of vaccines have distracted us and we have missed a huge opportunity with rapid tests. Have we missed it? What can we still do about it? Why did we miss it? Is it still something that we should invest in and do more of? We certainly missed uh, many opportunities. Uh, and I think a lot of that uh, is, I don't want to pin it on the vaccines uh, per se, but what I would pin it on is related to the vaccines. And that is this infatuation with dealing with a public health problem with, with something that can either be injected into you or dealing with anything that uh, pulls a biological specimen out of you as a medical tool. We have so many tools at our disposal uh, that are public health tools that can be inexpensive, that can be scaled up in many ways that are very, very different than what we did. I think rapid tests are probably the one of the, the, the best examples of this, that we totally missed the forest for the trees here. And still to this day, have yet to treat this pandemic like the public health problem that it is, clawing our way back one by one with medical type of interventions. Of course, the vaccine is and, and always has been the, the thing that will you know, be the lasting sort of nail in the coffin uh, to a certain extent on this pandemic. So it was right to focus on it. But uh, we could have had these tests out in August of 2020 and potentially stop the surges of the fall and winter and, and hundreds of thousands of deaths. And, uh, you know, our failure to do that will only become more apparent as time goes on. I'm going to continue down this somewhat doleful road and ask you about what I think is a failure and is one that is driving me crazy, which is why we still don't have really clear evidence about how much the vaccine prevents transmission from people who've been vaccinated to other people. Ooh, it's infuriating. I don't get it. It's like so crucial <laughs> for people's behavior. And it just seems like it's so easy. Like, don't you just test everybody who got vaccinated and figure out whether they have COVID in their nose or not? Like, what? how could we not be doing this? I don't I, I have. It. I have tried to say this for so long. The, the transmission question is just an astounding one. There, there are so many simple ways to quickly get the transmission piece uh, figured out. And, but, but instead of doing it efficiently and quickly, there started to be requests for proposals for hundreds of millions of dollars for, new, for whole new trials to explore that. And I said, look, we already, have, we already have thousands of people who have been vaccinated months ago, thousands of people who haven't. Let's just go swab them all like on a routine basis. They are, like, let's keep those arms of the vaccine, the same people. We don't have to start a whole new study for all this money, hundreds of millions of dollars. We can just do it efficiently you know, and have the results uh, in weeks. And you know, that type of thinking, this like efficient, fast moving, doing the research that lives up to the pace of this pandemic just has been completely absent. All we have done every step of the way is just done what is safe, done what we have known. And, and, and the only changes we've made from the normal status quo is to 
maybe take everything and, and miniaturize it or make it just a little bit shorter. We have to think in whole new ways during a pandemic like this. And, and we have, I have yet to see really an example of it, unfortunately. Michael, what is there a global theory you have for why um, these, the risk aversion basically that you're talking about? I mean, don't public health officials at the ground ground level in the counties, don't they have to make decisions all the time on bad, limited information from sketchy sources, but that if they don't make the call, lots of lives are going to be lost? And if that's the case, is it just that once you make it bigger, once you get the federal government or the state government involved, everybody gets super risk averse and politics gets into play. And so nobody does anything. Or is it there? Is there another? Is there a problem setting problem that has nothing to do with politics? What are the habits of mind that we can try and fix since we're going to be faced with this again soon enough? Yeah, I think it's I think it's twofold. Uh, on the one hand, there are laws and regulations that need to be more malleable. I would say one of the major common threads that has happened is there's just been confusion. We, we continue to fail to ask the right people the right questions. We ask the wrong people the right, you know, the, the, the questions that maybe should be best directed to somebody else. Uh, of just, you know, for any listeners, an epidemiologist is not necessarily an immunologist, and an immunologist is not necessarily a virologist, and a doctor doesn't necessarily have any idea what to do in public health. These are really different things, but unfortunately, you know, I think putting MDs in charge of public health over and over and over has been a mistake, and that happens at almost every level of governance. Uh, MDs are in charge of public health. Now, we're lucky now with the CDC, we have somebody, an MD, who I think is uh, equipped to deal with public health, but that's not always the case. But the other, the, the real issue, I think, is on this risk aversion bit, it's politics. It's nobody wants to stick their neck out there, even amongst the scientists. This groupthink that happens among scientists that you know very few scientists are willing to have either the, the courage or the or feel the uh, like they have enough of a background to to sort of go against the tides, even if those tides don't make sense. And we saw this very early on. Scientist after scientist said, uh, "We don't know if masks work." <laughs> and I don't know. You just go back to first principles and you say, "Of course, we. This is a respiratory virus. Of course, we know masks work." You're allowed to, you know, use your brain, and and say masks will probably work. Like that's okay. And you know, so then you bring that to that's just scientists, but then you put that on public health officials, and you know, it's so easy. You'd rather fail, and frankly, in this pandemic, you'd rather have people die uh, as long as it's doing what is recommended, than to save people. You know, have a 90% chance of saving a lot of people doing something that's not recommended because of that 10% or that 1% chance that it might go awry and then everything falls on you. And, you know, that's, we have a, we have a system set up to um, push us entirely in, in the wrong directions and, and to stay with status quo. Do you see any sign that the Biden administration will be different on some of these uh more strategic questions and, and not make some of the same mistakes or will discourage the scientific establishment from making the same mistakes? Um, that is a I long would, silence. <laughs> uh, well, I, I'm thinking about my experience. Um, you know, I, I don't think I have uh, disliked a human being um, 
more than I disliked uh, our previous president. Uh, but what I would say is working with his administration was uh, in many ways transparent. And uh, you know, I would say it wasn't organized and there was, very, there was essentially no strategy. But at the very least, they were willing to try things. They were willing to be a little bit bullish. They, you know, they had people like Brett Giroir who were really willing to just go for it. And I think there could have been a lot of successes there uh, had they had some strategy, uh, which they didn't. Uh, but you know, working with the Biden administration, they're organized again. Uh, but it does mean that there is uh, an immense force field around their decision making. And, uh, and I worry uh, that um, you know, they have a, a few very strong voices and good scientists, um, but uh, all efforts have gone towards vaccine. And maybe this is just um, a reflection of when Biden became president, you know, the vaccines actually started to exist and, so, and be available. So they've put all effort on the vaccines you know, I was really hoping that they'd come out very strong with new policy around uh, rapid tests and, and with thinking out of the box. And instead, it's been a lot more of uh, let's build up PCR labs. And you know, I've shown very clearly in publication after publication that just like the, the moment you have PCR laboratory testing, which is again the conservative approach, it's you're not going to go wrong. But I've tried to show very many times that if your test results are taking days to return then you're not stopping transmission. You know, that's been a little bit frustrating, I would say. Yeah, I mean, I think it's easy to hear the frustration in your voice. It must be hard to feel like you're a scientist kind of howling into the wilderness and these bureaucracies are really entrenched and speeding things up a little, but keeping their existing process is really different from saying, let's blow up the whole process. So here's a frustration of mine as like just a member of the public. I feel like there has been a level of paternalism um, to the point of of falsehoods in the public health messaging from the CDC, from other government entities, and that it continues. And I understand that they are looking at a country in which there's been a deep divide over masks and other interventions, and that they are concerned about letting people do too much too quickly, and that is real. But I feel like we they have and the country has lost the sense of the price of over caution and and that it's so it goes so far so what's bothering me right now is this um willingness to say only that vaccinated people can very cautiously gather with other vaccinated people in small groups um which i think a lot of people continue to translate into like really i'm vaccinated but i should only see a few people outside and i'm hearing this like among my own friends and family in this way that i find really puzzling and it's dispiriting because i think like the people who've been isolated so long should need to be able to come out now you know they've been vaccinated they should feel safer than they do and it seems like the overcaution in the cdc's messaging is having the opposite effect that's not really a question. Sorry. Yeah, but well, the, <laughs> the paternalism, <laughs> the, the paternalism issue, I think, is real. Um, I, I would say, I mean, I think some of the recommendations of the last couple of days from the CDC have started to go in a slightly different direction. To be honest, I, I think that we do have to continue being careful, which I understand from the CDC's perspective. They are always thinking about what is the most clear message we can give to Americans this very black and white on-off. There is this continued uh, persistence to, to 
always edge on the side of saying that uh, you know Americans don't know anything. And you know, maybe on average that's true, but we can teach Americans things. You know, there's, there's another tool uh, that we haven't used during this pandemic, and that's the power of educating people in a formal way. Why this far into the pandemic hasn't the U.S. government ever gotten the, the, the country's largest and most effective media agencies involved to, to give pu- public health messages? Like, you know, to socialize the country, to understand complex themes through marketing and advertising and media agencies that literally are billion-dollar industries that, because they know how to get people to think certain ways. Where it comes back to what you're saying, I think that if we ever leverage that tool all of a sudden the, fi- the federal government would find itself in a better position maybe to give better scientific-based uh, uh, public health advice to the public. That would be able to give them more latitude to deal with the kind of questions that you're raising. Yeah, I mean, I, I, look, I could be wrong about this, but it, it, what strikes me is that instead of the paternalism, if the CDC would say, look, like we need everyone to hang together for the next few months. Yes, you're vaccinated, but we still need you to wear a mask and social distance when you're in public because people need to see those norms being upheld. Like, please do it for all of us. To me, that kind of uplifting communal message would be much more satisfying than like, oh, you know, there could be some great risks that the vaccines don't prevent transmission when it seems like they significantly do anyway. Yeah, no, I, I, I totally agree, though. I would say I, I'm personally concerned that um, not so much that people are going to get severely ill in, in the near future, but uh, it, it is a, it's, a different, it's a different issue than what you're describing. But uh, in the near term or, or in, the, in, you know, in the next six months or seven months, uh, we've only measured these vaccines so far at, during their peak effectiveness, if you will, uh, in many ways, during, during the, the first three to four months of, after they're given. And so all of this information that we have on 95% efficacy, we actually haven't asked the question yet, how effective is it uh, after the major antibody secreting cell population dies off, which happens at about four, three, three months or so, four months. And it's going to be very, very important for us to keep that in mind you know, and I, I actually think that we should be, instead of just kind of always flip-flopping to, to like black and white and positive negative, we should probably be saying, hey, look, you know, you've been vaccinated. Let's be honest with the American public. We're giving this guidance now. There's a chance that uh, six months from now or in the fall, we're going to have to retract our guidance. You know, but they're, they're usually just, we have such a reactive government that they're unwilling to um, say things proactively based on you know uncertainties and based on s- certain aspects. But I do think you know maybe that type of thinking and and looking at the unknowns maybe is going into some of their 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 decision making and how they are messaging it right now with in the context of what you're asking about. But CDC aside, that is a, a major concern that I have. You know the most vulnerable people are older, and older people are less able to retain good immunological memory for long periods of time. And then we have mutant strains, uh, you know, that are that are able to already start evading a little bit of immunity. We could find ourselves in a pretty tricky position in the fall again. And I think we should be being proactive to let Americans know very clearly what they might have to expect in the fall, and deal with it in a in a much more robust way, rather than just saying just the uplifting message or just the the deriding message. I suppose. Michael Mina is a professor at Harvard's Chan School of Public Health. 
Michael, thanks for joining us. And may uh, the happier scenarios come to pass and the less happy ones not. Well, well th thanks so much for having me on. Now, let us go to cocktail chatter. When you and all your vaccinated friends will be hanging out on a porch somewhere soon, maybe not even on a porch, in a very claustrophobic room with poor air circulation soon, what will you be chattering about then in that, that future some months away, John Dickerson? Two little chatters. Uh, I don't know why I'm putting them together. Maybe they just, I don't know, whatever. Anyway, there's a story in the Philadelphia Inquirer about a guy who lived or says he lived, Tom Garvey, who um, says he lived for a couple of years at Veterans Stadium. He wrote a book, self-published, I believe, The Secret Apartment, Vet Stadium, a surreal memoir that details how from 1979 to 1981, he lived in an empty concession stand inside the vet, um, which he basically turned into an apartment for himself. And it's a, it's the Philadelphia Inquirer piece is um, is quite amusing. And it's the players knew about it, or they sort of knew about it. Um, anyway, and then the second thing I is... I love that. Is, uh, yeah, I thought you might, since you... There's a great 99% Invisible episode about a guy, actually a group of people who lived inside a mall in Rhode Island, I, which is in that vein. Oh, yeah. And then there's always occasion... Like, it feels like every couple of years, somebody's discovered living inside of an airport. Um, and then the second is Jeremy Irons reading the Psalms. JeremyIrons.net. He's got the voice for it. So if you like the Psalms, go listen to him, read them, because it's it's good. Emily, what's your chatter? I am chattering this week about two books. So the first one is kind of like a companion to Heather McGee's book. It's called The Whiteness of Wealth. It's by Dorothy Brown, who is a law professor at Emory, whose work I have followed with interest for a long time now. And she is similarly kind of taking an issue, the tax system, which we thought was like kind of generic and we understood and looking at how it actually disproportionately benefits white people just based on the very assumptions with which it was drawn. She points out in the introduction that our modern tax system really comes from this 1913 law, which of course was passed at a time before black people fully gained the right to vote in the 1960s. And she it points out this one thing that I had never thought about before, and that's sort of what I love about reading this book, which is that the tax code benefits you as a married couple more if you have one person who makes lots of money and the other person who makes much less money or no money. And that arrangement is much more prevalent among white families than it is among black and Latino families. And I don't know, that, like, it was one of those things where, like, oh, my God, I never thought about that before. And it really makes a difference in people's lives. So I really recommend this book, The Whiteness of Wealth. And then I have to also recommend this really intense, gripping piece of fiction I read last week by Jessica Winter, uh, who used to no, work No, no, no. That's my chatter. No, that's your chatter? That's my chatter. You have stolen my second book. I would like to absolutely dispute the idea of stealing your second book. I, have, I sit in this here i have to go last for chatter all the time you don't have to go last you could call in yourself first oh it would seem it would that would that would <laughs> seem extremely ungracious what kind of host like like calls on Wait, serves gonna, themselves you're first? gonna start being gracious now 
<laughs> Wait, you have to get to the book because it's such an interesting book. And I'm honestly like, ama- I'm so interested that you read it. So go. Uh, so the the book I want to recommend, the chatter I want to talk about, is a book by Jessica Winter, who's a former Slate colleague of all of ours. Uh, she was an editor at Slate when we were all there. And she's now, I think, an editor at The New Yorker. Um, and she's written a novel. It's her second novel called The Fourth Child. And it's a really intense book. It's an, it's a it's the story of a family that adopts a with three children, a very Catholic family in Buffalo in the early 90s, and they adopt a young child from Romania, one, a Romanian orphan. And it's told from the point of view of the mother and then uh, a teenage daughter. It's a small domestic story in some ways, but it it's like a thriller. It is very unsettling. It's psychologically intense. I just don't know what is about to happen. It is... It is really hard to put down. It has all this this sort of insight into religious faith and religious zealotry and into family dynamics. And it's 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 amazing. It's an amazing book. It's kind of unusual. That was what I decided when I finished it, that the point of view, especially of Jane, who is the mother and the main character, it's her voice and her thoughts are not the usual vantage point that I think we get in a lot of American fiction. That was one of the many things that struck me about it. Check it out. The Fourth Child by Jessica Winter. Listeners, you bedazzle with your chatters every week. You have been tweeting them to us at, at @slategabfest. You can also email them to us at gabfest at slate.com if you would like to do that. And we have been hearing your voice as we do it. And the listener chatter this week comes from Seth Milloen. Take it away. Hey, guys. This is Seth from Cincinnati. And my listener chatter is about a guy I know named Del Hall. And every year, Del does a beer fast during Lent, where during that 46-day period, Del only drinks beer. Now, this is something he has done for the last couple of years, but the twist on it this year is that he is raising money for people who work in the service industry. What is amazing about this, I read about this in an article that Seth pointed us to in the Cincinnati Inquirer, is not simply that that uh, Dell drinks only beer. Dell eats only beer, too. It is the only thing he consumes for Lent is beer. What? Which is amazing. Well, that is amazing. I mean, yeah, because wouldn't... I mean, I guess at some point, you'd at the beginning, you'd get tipsy, and then your body would acclimate. Um, Couldn't you get scurvy from doing that? That sounds not healthy. Probably not I, long enough for scurvy to kick I in. I don't know. Um, I guess I so. Know. I always worry about scurvy. When Do you worry about scurvy? Monochrome diets. Yeah, because the thing about scurvy is you don't have any fruits and vegetables. You're just eating hardtack in the sea. Has that... But is that a problem that you or any of the, your friends have ever faced scurvy i feel no, like but it could be upon me at do you know any anyone who's ever had heart attack anyone who's ever had any heart attack well i remember like eating it in kindergarten when we were learning about <laughs> when you were learning your know, sea shanties or something. But it was not good did not seem like something you'd want to subsist on especially if it was moldy weevils did you have any weevils in it weevils. were there any weevils no, we did not import the weevils with the heart attack i've always what is a weevil it's gross it, it wobbles david but it doesn't fall down that's that's a weeble. That is our show for today. The Gap Fest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. Gabriel Roth is the editorial director of Slate Audio. June Thomas is the managing producer. 
and Alicia Montgomery is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at at SlateGabFest. Tweet chatter to us there. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thank you for listening. We will talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. We have listener Ryan Cummings throws a Slate Plus question at us. When you have a project, career-oriented or personal interest-related, that is headed in the wrong direction or you feel won't reach the goal you had in mind, what do you do? Do you throw it out immediately and start from scratch? Decide to power through and make it work? Table it for another time? Do you have a system, routine, or habit that you return to in these situations? I have so many thoughts on this. I imagine John has a billion thoughts on this. And Emily, I expect you have thoughts on this as well. So let's start with you. Well, I mean, I might have. So yes, here's my thought about this. I mean, this is the sunk cost problem, right? That once you start on something, even if it seems ill-fated or doomed, it's really hard to let go of it. And I have a lot of that in me. I, I think too much. I grew up with the idea that there was something shameful about quitting. Whereas, in fact, sometimes quitting is, like, great. It's liberating. It's a wise use of one's time. It's good for everyone. But I do have a hard time with it. And so I think the way I have increasingly dealt with this is that, and I don't succeed at this, but I try more to think in the beginning, do I really want to do this? (laughs) To try to head off what you're describing. And then I also try to just let myself off the hook of things more. And to realize that, like, if you plant a bunch of flowers, then you can just decide that some of them aren't going to come up and that you're, like, going to stop watering them when they don't come up instead of continuing to press on them. If you're pressing on your flowers, that might be the reason they're dying. That's true. That was a very poorly stated gardening metaphor, revealing, since I am a terrible gardener. Who is surprised by that? Nobody. (laughs) Um... This reminded me, first of all, it's a great question. I hope we get more questions like this. And testifying to its universal nature is that Adam Grant, um, the great writer uh, and... um GabFest fans, that was just a teaser. To hear the rest of our Slate Plus conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a Slate Plus member today.